Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're in a relationship constantly second-guessing yourself, well, homie, you're in the right place. This is Women of Impact, and I'm Lisa Billy, your host, and you're just in time for part two of this epic conversation with the psychologist and mental health advocate, Dr. Becky Spellman. And in the first part, we jumped right into the 13 signs that you're sleeping with a narcissist, and this conversation just keeps getting better. We talk about how narcissists use sex as a form of control, and ladies, we're going to make sure by the end of this episode, episode you are no freaking longer second guessing yourself and you have the knowledge you need to break free even if the sex is mind-blowingly good guys it's not worth losing yourself over it in this part of our conversation becky talks about the horrendous experience of being ghosted and devalued this is why the too good to be true first dates are a major red flag space and time is your best defense We also unpack how being dominated and submissive in the bedroom can go from fun and kinky to toxic before you even see it. Ladies, I'm all about bringing you guests with the insights and tools you need to become stronger and more confident in your life and in your relationship. And Women is Impact is for women like you. So guys, please leave a rate and review and let me know how this podcast is helping you live your freaking best life. It means so much to me. It also informs me on the things that you're struggling with so that I can keep showing up and bringing you content that actually helps you turn into the badass that you really want to be. So right now, my homie, drop in a rate and review and then you can jump back and listen to this episode with my girl, Dr. Becky Spellman. So it's not that they're looking to go to therapy to actually change. It's to either get an audience or show their ex that they're faux changing. Exactly. Got it. Whew, it's so complicated. It's like, well, he's gone to therapy. Look, see, he really wants to make this work. Oh, yeah, exactly. Which is the manipulation in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's, it's highly manipulative to kind of, you know, pretend you're going to do the work. And, you know, and sometimes things are consciously manipulative with narcissists. Sometimes things are just you know, autopilot of like, okay, well, she says, go to therapy, she'll stay with me. I'll go to therapy, she'll Mm -hmm. stay with me. And, you know, they're often not thinking about things on a, you know, a deep level because they're not able to really consider your perspective. Um, Because actually, if they were able to consider your perspective, lies would feel terrible. They would feel very guilty about lying. They'd feel guilty about cheating. But actually, because they're not able to consider your perspective, then that guilt doesn't kick in in a way that guides them. So how do you know then in that moment that, Let's say you, you have a turbulent relationship, you've gone through all the signs that we're going through and you bring it up to your narcissistic partner, maybe you leave them and then they're like, oh, look, I'll, I'll go to therapy. How do you know then, because obviously you can't sit on that therapy session, 
that it's actually authentic. Yeah. So one of the biggest problems with people who have been in relationships for a long time with narcissists is they are convinced that the narcissist will change. And they also have a bit of a fixing compulsion, which is usually about trying to fix the parent Mm. who has um, had the mental health difficulties or has had something that's not been ideal where they've suffered in, in childhood and they just really needed to fix their parents. So they play out this fixing compulsion with their partner. Um, so then the, the wishful thinking of maybe they'll change one day. People hold on to that because they want the love back. They want the good times back and they often experience those good times. And that's where you see people stay in these relationships for 40 years. And, um, and they're constantly, you know, chasing the maybe they will change. Um, so I think this is about actually seeking very good advice, having very good support, actually confiding in your friends and telling them what's really going on. Because for some people, when they're in these relationships, they hold so much shame that they don't want to say to their friends how bad it really is. Um, so actually trying to be realistic about how much change is possible is important. And sometimes people don't know if their partner is a narcissist or not. They're kind of like, oh, they've, you know, maybe a narcissist, maybe not a narcissist. And then they kind of do a lot of overthinking about it and they do a lot of ruminating about the change and kind of, it becomes almost like a fantasy or a daydream. Like they are preoccupied and consumed by this idea of change or else completely sweeping it all under the carpet and just getting through life. And just life is just about survival rather than actually really thriving. I've worked with women who have accepted all sorts of things in relationships and, you know, they'll accept like raised voices, for instance, um, which I see that as a, a huge boundary crossing. But often because boundaries are crossed to such extremes and there's so much name calling and there's so much horrendous behavior in some of these relationships that the boundaries, you know, the bar is so low. So actually there's a lot of mistreatment going mm. on. So I would say write a list of all the boundaries that you absolutely will not accept. Um, and, you know, even the smallest of things and then actually see what's it like to try and communicate those boundaries to your partner. Does your partner respect them? Because they understand that actually their behavior does make you, you know, feel bad when they do these certain things that you are saying cross your boundaries. And then they should respect that if they have you know, an adequate amount of empathy. But if you're taking this list to your partner and you're saying, look, I feel these things are, you know, it's crossing my boundaries when you shout at me. It's crossing my boundaries when you call me names. Um, you know, it's crossing your boundaries when you, you know, when we have fights in front of our children. Uh, so you're, you're starting to list these things and then all of the crazy kind of conversation takes place. They're denying it or, you know, it's just not a two-way conversation. Then that's probably a good indicator to leave. At that oh, point. that's very tactical. Thank you for that. Um, okay. Number seven, well, they'll make you believe there is something wrong with you. Yeah. So, well, this is a control thing and also it's protecting their ego because if you're the problem, then they're good. Mm-hmm. And that you, you need the fixing. So you're the one with the problem. And some people take that on in quite a codependent way. So then actually they become kind of like the mentor and you become almost like the patient. And, um, and then they, they have control over the relationship. And, and if you follow that lead, you can sustain the relationship. They can stay in that relationship because their ego is intact and you can stay in that relationship because you're following their lead and that can go on for a really long time. But you have to accept that there's something wrong with you, even though there's nothing wrong with you. Mm. Uh, And, you know, of course, it's a two-way relationship. We all have our flaws. Um, So if your relationship looks very much like, you know, patient, uh, you're the patient and they're not, Mm. they're the leader, then they're saying there's something wrong with you. And and that's how the relationship can be sustained for a very long time, but it's not healthy. And then speaking of the flaws, they'll 
probably deny they have any and then be very um, open and uh, encouraging to point out your flaws. Yeah, exactly. Because they can't accept that they're less than perfect. It causes too much shame in them. It really triggers the I'm not good enough and the core beliefs in them, the negative core beliefs. And that that really feels uncomfortable. So they will do anything to protect their ego. Um, so you can't tell them that their behavior was not appropriate. They're going to be defensive. Mm-hmm. Very fair. Okay. Number eight, you'll get devalued, ghosted and ignored. Yeah. The devaluing phase of the narcissistic relationship, it's horrendous because you've been idolized. You've been put on a pedestal. You've been wooed. You've been told you're fabulous. You feel like this absolute high and all of a sudden you're nothing. You are not important anymore and they're gone and they are a different person. And actually the person that you thought existed never existed in the first place. That was just the pursuing phase. That was Casanova. Mm. Casanova is not who you want to be in a relationship with. Yes, they'll bring you flowers and knock on your door and hunt you down and, you know, woo you in, in the way that the movies show you that love is supposed to be like, but actually it's not very healthy at all because um, if something is too good to be true or too intense at the start, you're going to get the flip side. So you, the idolization comes first and then the devaluation, which is where you're going to get disghost, you're going to get di- ghosted and discarded. Ooh. Oh, yeah. When you said that like they change, it's not actually that they change, is that they are now showing you who they really are. Yeah, yeah. they don't change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't change. They just get bored because actually you're no longer feeding their ego because you've fallen for them. And if you've fallen for them, then you're not good enough. So then that means that you're not good enough for them because they can only be with someone who's incredible, who's amazing, uh, because then they feel good enough. So they have to go on to their next victim. They have well, to chase well. <laughs> So what if they don't move on though? How does that devaluation look like maybe like in a marriage on a day-to-day? Yeah, because they don't, I mean, you're lucky if they move on. If they ghost you and you oh, never, yeah. and they, they've devalued you forever permanently, you know, obviously it's very painful, but you've dodged a huge bullet. Often they don't move on because often they won't move on until they found their next they have to feel, you know, usually they'll have back-to-back relationships. So they'll already be having an affair and then they might jump into that. They oh. might jump ship. So a lot of back, back-to-back uh, relationships go on with narcissists. But um, so they might hold on to you because actually you, you know, you are someone that they can control. Um, they have, you know, what they, they have their needs met um, and, you know, they have reasons why they're staying, but they've already devalued you. So the devaluing stage is then mistreating you and putting you down and making you not feel good and not responding to your emotions. And then um, the cycle starts all over again, because actually you might distance yourself and you might ignore them and you might might do things where actually they need to woo you back again. Mm-hmm. And then that's where you have a cycle of a lot of idolization and devaluing. And will they flip-flop? So like if you're about to leave or you're showing signs of like um like almost recognition like hang on a minute this person isn't like will they start to then go will they flip back to the putting you on a pedestal well in these relationships we often see break up get back together right, you know so yeah. it's a, so to get you back they will often have to do the idolization again and, and chase you and conquer and then in those stages if you have distanced yourself and you have been like no actually the, my partner said something really inappropriate i need some space they you know start to question oh maybe you were good enough and then they start to idolize you again mm. and oh if she's strong enough to leave me or strong enough to ignore me maybe she is good enough i need to prove to myself that i'm worthy so therefore i'm going to chase her back again so actually it depends on your behavior. And this is, you know, this is interesting because it's, it's not completely just all in their control. How you respond to them will often influence how the cycle goes. 
So actually, if you are someone who distances yourself and you're, you're someone who kind of like doesn't speak to them for a while when they participate in bad behaviors, then you're going to probably see some kind of idolization again. If you're someone who just consistently chases them, you're more likely to get devalued and dropped and ghosted or just, you know, or else they'll stay in the relationship and, um, you know, just kind of drag you along because they're also not very good at breaking up with people um, because they're, they're people pleasers. So they're not going to sit you down and say, look, you know, we've had a fabulous time, but we're just not very aligned. I just don't think this relationship is going to continue. But, you know, I really, really, I really love the time that I've had with you. That's not going to be a breakup conversation with a narcissist. They will often avoid breaking up with you because actually it's, it's conflict. So avoidance of conflict is huge. Um, so actually dragging a relationship on for an incredibly long time is not uncommon for a narcissist. This is something they will often do and they'll just keep the relationship going rather than leaning into what they're really feeling and trying to make decisions based on that. Mm. And in the devaluing process then, for some people, I assume you're going to try harder. And so is that like a way for them to even feel better about themselves? Because like now you're really trying hard. It's like, well, I must be great if this person's trying hard to keep me. Yeah, it becomes a, a game. And actually, you know, with some narcissists where they're going more into having some traits of, of, psycho, of, of being a psychopath that actually they might experience pleasure in your suffering. So if you're chasing them and you're sending them loads of messages, please, please talk to me. You know, can we just have a conversation? I don't understand what's happened, like what's gone wrong. They may be reading those messages and actually feeling a lot of pleasure in your suffering if they have some traits of being a psychopath. I'm not saying all narcissists will actually feel pleasure out of your suffering, but some will. So will narcissists more like feel numb, but psychopaths will feel excitement? Well, some people have traits of being a psychopath and also there will be very high traits of narcissism there as well. So there's a crossover, you know, it's a spectrum, like everything is a spectrum, right? You have, you know, your normal person has actually lots of traits of narcissism and those can be quite helpful. We Just like taking selfies, getting in front of the camera, things like that. (laughs) Exactly, exactly what we're doing right now. You know, you get things done, it motivates you, you know, we we need a little bit and, you know, it's how people write books. Um, So... So then you've got like the healthy population. Yes, some traits of narcissism. And then we move up and then you've got people who have loads of traits of narcissism, not psychopaths. So they're not so manipulative or they can rein themselves in. So they're not causing so much harm. They're not saying abusive things. They're able to somewhat control their behavior, but they'll still play out the uh, the chasing behavior, the conquering behavior, the devaluing, the de- but it might be done in a more passive, more covert kind of way. That's where you're going to see the covert narcissist. Then we start leaning into the psychopath, which is actually, again, very, very high traits of narcissism, even far more than the previous, previous part of the spectrum. And then you're seeing the actual psychopathic behaviors, very high manipulation. And that's where things get quite dangerous. Oh, really? Yeah. I was actually going to ask, um, I don't want to do well, but like, what are the little signs difference between then the, the narcissist and the psychopath? Psychopath, I think that most people will be left feeling on edge most of the time. So this is when your body is going to give you messages. So even if you're not very good at regulating your own emotions, what you will still feel is anxiety because we can't suppress anxiety. That's the one emotion that we feel, you know, regardless, Mm -hmm. it will come up if it needs to come up. And often what happens when you're in a relationship or you're interacting with a narcissist who has some traits of being a psychopath is your body is actually going into fight or flight and telling you to run, even when you're not seeing that the behaviors are problematic. 
but there's something going on in the interaction that your survival system is kicking in and you're going into fight or flight state. state. So what you might notice, let's just say you go on a first date with a narcissist who is also leaning into being a psychopath, you're going to very, be feel very, very nervous on that date. And it'll be more than just first date nerves. You'll be very self-conscious and you'll feel it in your body. And it will um, be very much about that other person's gaze. It's like that other person's gaze is on you and you're their puppet and they want to really have you on their strings. And your body is saying, you know, get away, run. But actually you're not cognitive. So you're not thinking, oh wait, this person is being manipulative. There's something dangerous. I need to get away. But your body is telling you. And what happens here is that often people will then wake up in night terrors. They'll have panic attacks in their sleep. They'll feel very anxious going to work and their body just absorbs um, the anxiety. And that's if they're being highly manipulated in a relationship, their body is, is actually telling the signs of there's something seriously wrong, fight or flight, go. But the person is not able to recognize that it's fight or flight and it's their body saying go. And in a lot of people, actually, if that anxiety is, let's just say a bit less, um, they will perceive that ex- as excitement and that's what's, what will get them going. And that's what they will perceive as attraction. But actually it's not attraction, it's fear. And this is where people often confuse fear and attraction. And they go for these more dramatic relationships because they need the anxiety to kick in. They need to feel that excitement. But actually what it really is, is it's fear. They know their body is preempting that they're going to get hurt. They're preempting something is going to go, go wrong. But actually they're, uh, they're really used to relationships where actually they feel a lot of excitement or they feel a lot of, a lot of anxiety. They don't know any different. And this is where actually they've had to, this individual most likely has felt very on edge in their household growing up that there was, there was stuff going on that made them feel uncomfortable. And then that becomes normalized. So then when people are feeling that in dating scenarios or in relation, in the early stages of relationships, they're not recognizing that it's a fight or flight thing. And they're actually thinking, oh no, this is the excitement of love. It's not, it's, wow. it's anxiety. Well, wow, because your body is responding in that same way. You get, may get the sweaty palms, you get the, like the racing heart. So your body can perceive, right? Fear, anxiety, and uh, attraction is somewhat the same. Yeah. And also there's a self-esteem element because if someone is experiencing social anxiety, essentially, you know, because it's the gaze of the narcissist and you're wanting to impress this, you know, charismatic person, the person usually thinks there's something wrong with them if they're having the heart palpitations and they think it's something wrong with their confidence. And then they will actually label it more as a problem with their social anxiety Mm. rather than it be being actually that their body is doing them a huge favor and saying run. (laughs) Uh, So this is where people often will be like, oh, but I just feel so nervous on, you know, I'm going on the second date with a narcissist because they're not, they're not using them that, that, that label, but um, I'm going the second date and I just, I'm like a bundle of nerves. I'll drink some alcohol before I go, or I'll drink on the date to settle the nerves. And what you're doing is you're actually shutting off your anxiety system and you need your anxiety system to help you get out of the relationship in the early days. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with highs as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your 
your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is a negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about. That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. Ooh, so um, I find this stuff fascinating. I um, actually at one point was really fascinated with Ted Bundy and just like how he was able to use so much charisma. I obviously didn't know about narcissism and things like that back then, but like you would see these videos of him and like he would seem so charming and like, you're like, oh my God, of course. And then you see another video of him and you see like dead in his eyes and like he doesn't see, like he sees through your soul. So when you were describing like the narcissist and the psychopath where it's like that fight or flight where you're just like you just feel uneasy like I I just as you were saying I just pictured Ted Bundy I'm like I know exactly what you mean yeah these are very charismatic individuals particularly you know if we're leaning into like the proper psychopath because psychopaths can be people who are not murdering people and they're not committing crimes they just have absolutely no capacity for empathy at all so that's where we're leaning you know mm-hmm. going on the the top of the spectrum so no capacity for empathy high traits of narcissism and then you're going to have more manipulative behavior because actually they're they're experiencing you know no feelings of guilt they're actually experiencing pleasure in your suffering so then the control actually elicits pleasure in them so there's an incentive for them to control you and there's an incentive for them to cause harm mm-hmm. And it gets sinister and that's where it's scary and your body is telling you flee. And that's where with those kind of narcissists, you're, um, you're really getting your strong flight or flight. You're going to get a more minor flight or flight with, um, people who are just highly judgmental. So the, the gaze of the narcissist where they're looking down on you is going to make you feel anxious as well. It's built in, um, our systems because actually we need to feel a bit 
of social anxiety in order to fit in and survive. So actually when the narcissist is judging us negatively and looking down on us, that's where people will feel anxious because they're thinking, oh, I'm not, I don't feel good enough because they, they'll know that this person is actually judging them negatively. Um, so then that's where you'll also get a bit of anxiety when dating a narcissist, but they don't necessarily need to be a psychopath for you to feel that yeah and I just just for anyone at home I'm not saying that all psychopaths are murderers thank you for saying that like I just I was just like what psychopath do I know and I was like that's so funny <laughs> good um, example yeah. he was he was a womanizer yeah oh god fascinating like absolutely because you do see how charismatic he was and you see why women absolutely oh of course I'll come and help you t- t- take something to your car right and he managed to like persuade women to get in his Volkswagen you know, Beetle and say he was a cop. It's like, you know, and the story with the one person that actually survived, she said like, all the signs were going off. Something doesn't feel right, but he's so sweet and he's so lovely and he, he's got his arm in a cast, you know, so all these things that you're, generous sweet kind mind tells you overrides that notion that your gut is trying to scream at you absolutely and also the attractive traits in narcissists and this is where it gets really difficult for women narcissists are very authoritative and men who are authoritative it's a very masculine trait and it's very attractive Mm. it's very attractive to women when a man can be authoritative in a healthy way that's fantastic you've got a man who's confident Narcissists are overly authoritative. So then that's where it's difficult to draw the line. So often women are going towards narcissists. And I think in this day and age, you know, some men are, are afraid to be authoritative because, you know, there's been a lot of things that have happened where, where actually it's, you know, it's hard for them to, to kind of necessarily feel confident to have that masculine trait of being authoritative. And um, so women are craving this authoritative figure. And then they find the narcissist and like, oh, finally a confident man who's not afraid to take the lead and be authoritative authoritative but it's the wrong type of authoritative because that's controlling so actually what women you know can be looking out for is a confident empathic authoritative man is you know highly desirable but women you know see the authority of narcissus and and because it's quite a masculine trait it's highly attractive um and this is where this this charisma thing comes into narcissism mm. wow i'd never thought about that almost like narcissists now have an i hate to say it, but like a bit of an easier time maybe because guys do seem to be getting a little less confident. And so to your point, when a narcissist comes along, you just see the confidence. So yeah, it's hard for men because I think there's a lot of messages that they pick up on where they yeah, feel afraid to be authoritative and women need authoritative men. It's, it's, you know, it's what women crave. And, um, and then that's the, that is probably the problem with why so many women end up with narcissists. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I find confidence very sexy, even yeah. when in a woman, right? Like, oh yeah, she's got confidence, yeah. right? Like they're drawn to it. Yeah, exactly. So like, and this is the thing, it's like, you know, don't feel bad if you've been in a relationship with narcissists. Don't feel bad if you've dated them. And actually, most people have dated narcissists. If they've been single for any period of time, they have dated narcissists. Because, you know, if we think about my earlier point of what is narcissism and why are we overusing this word? Well, actually, it's just low empathy and it's just uh, selfishness because of not having the best caregiving. And that, unfortunately, is a lot of people because there's no parenting manual and, mm-hmm. you know, parenting is really tough. And, you know, sadly, a lot of parents do not have the means or have not had the upbringing to do a fantastic job. So actually, there's a lot of people with low self-esteem um, who haven't really, you know, developed the levels of empathy that make them really good at being in a relationship. So there's loads of low empathy people out there. And that's that's why it's quite common for someone to have encountered 
some of these people along the line if they've been searching the dating pool. Yeah. All right. Number nine, they want to be in control all the time. So going back to kind of dominating you. Yeah, they do want to be in control all the time. And, you know, again, it's like it's attractive in the beginning because you want a leader. You know, women find that great. They find it refreshing to be feminine. And, oh, the man's not afraid to take the lead. Great. I take take a break. Mm -hmm. I don't have to make the decisions all of the time. So that dynamic can be a lovely male-female dynamic in the beginning. Women can feel very very submissive in a very comforting way. Um, So, you know, it's not all bad in the beginning. But then that it doesn't become mutual. So actually it doesn't even out where actually, okay, you get to make some decisions some of the time. I make some decisions sometimes and you have this mutually loving, respectful relationship um, because actually the narcissist, because of their ego, will feel that they're the better one to make all the decisions. They're right and you're wrong after all. And, uh, and therefore they have to be in control all the time. But what's interesting in this one is in a sexual relationship, So I'm just going to share my own story. I actually love my husband taking control in the bedroom. Like I actually love being submissive. Now, of course, I trust him. We've been together for 23 years. But if you are a person that actually likes that, the I'm just going to assume here, the guy to take control in the bedroom, where, how do you start to assess? Mm. Because if you like it in the bedroom and they want it in the bedroom, how do you know? Yeah. So again, just listen to your gut because all sorts of like dynamics can play out in the bedroom that, you know, if people know their own pleasure and they're really in tune with that, they know what they want in the bedroom. They're able to communicate that to the partner, mm. the partner who they trust, the partner who they know loves them, who they know cares about their feelings. So anything can happen in the bedroom. It doesn't mind, no matter how weird and wonderful it is. And, um, you know, and actually, you know, it can be that if you're a female, that relationship can be that um, that your man is always very dominant in the bedroom or maybe not, but actually it's safe because you're in a safe space. So you don't need to look at the dynamic in the bedroom, but what you do need to look at is how their behavior makes you feel. And that's where, you know, I, I know some women who've sadly fallen into BDSM relationships. So bondage, domination, sadomasochism. And that was normalized for a long time. There was like the whole Fifty Shades of Grey movement, which I was very worried about. I was worried for women because I was like, oh, my God, this is some sinister men are going to take the opportunity to just have complete control and dominate. And then the woman's going to accept that because it's now being normalized. So um, some women fall into these um, dominant relationships and it's um, sold to them as being part of a kink. And then because it's part of a kink, it's like, oh, it's sexy. It's cool. I'm just experimenting. This is very interesting. And for some people, those relationships are fantastic and very healthy and very you know trusting, very safe. But actually, if you get into that kind of situation with a narcissist, it can be very damaging and very abusive and very dangerous because they are allowed to have all the control because you're deciding to be the submissive in that dynamic and they're the dominant one. So they can inflict pain, they can be abusive, and it's all guised as being, oh, it's just our kink. You know, this is what we do in the bedroom. Um, and I'm not saying that all relationships like that are bad or harmful because again, trust your instinct. It's really about listening to your emotions, but actually be careful if you're going into that kind of dynamic with a narcissist. So I think this is where, you know, it's, it's really important to be having conscious sex with anyone that you're having sex with, because then if you encounter a narcissist and you're being conscious about 
what do I want? What do I feel? What's happening in my body? What are my emotions telling me? Then if something doesn't feel right, you're going to be able to stop the situation and be like, hey, can we just have a chat about what just happened there? And that's really important, actually, when you're having sex with someone who is you know, a new partner, who's not making you feel great, who might have high traits of narcissism, is as soon as you feel something emotionally that doesn't um, feel great, just stop what you're doing mm. and say, hey, can we just take a step back? You know, when you did that, it actually felt a bit a bit upsetting for me and just see how they respond. And going back to that, I'm just obsessed with what you just said about um, Fifty Shades. They really romanticized it as well. They romanticized the pain and the dominance um, and that type of uh, um, connection. Yeah. And, you know, no one was really talking back then about, but what about, you know, ending up doing this with the wrong people? Oh, and yeah. it was so concerning. And I think I wish we could like just rewind to that place in time and be like, you know, look, you need to screen, you know, if you're, if you're going to, you know, get into that dynamic, amazing, but like you have to build trust first. You have to screen your partner. You have to have, you know, long conversations with them and you have to actually test out how will they respond to your emotions and also how will they manage, how will they deal with conflict? So it's better to you know, spend enough time with them to, to see what goes, what happens when you have a disagreement, because then you're going to have an indicator as to what's going to happen in the bedroom. If you don't, if you're not aligned on some of the interaction that that's happening. So no, don't sleep with a guy on the first date, just in case they're a narcissist. Talk to them for six hours. <laughs> six hours. <laughs> yeah, like, like by all means, if you want to sleep with them on the, on the first date, sleep with them, but talk to them at length and ask them questions, ask them about their family, ask them about their passion. You know, just um, it's like you're going on a fishing trip. You don't know what you're looking to find, but you're looking for information. And at all times, just keep doing a body scan and particularly like what's your chest telling you? What's your stomach telling you? What are you feeling? And um, if you're feeling too excited, then, you know, maybe something is, you know, too good to be true. Um, or actually, if they're upset, if they've upset you a few times, then that's also an indicator that actually this prison might not be a safe prison. Oh, all right. Um, number 10, they will lie. Just flat out lie. I'm just going to lie. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it kind of feeds into all the other things, the gaslighting, the kind of delusions they tell themselves to protect their own ego. Um, they're right and you're wrong. I mean, it's all to do with control, their own, protecting their own ego. They, they can't accept that actually they might be wrong sometimes. And sometimes their behavior really falls short, short and they're not good enough, triggers too much shame in them. And that's not something that they can tolerate. Um, so then another thing is that they're not going to register enough guilt in order for, for them to feel bad enough about lying. And mm -hmm. this is where they'll cheat. And cheating is more common if you're dating a narcissist. And the reason they're able to cheat is that actually they might register a bit of guilt, but they'll dismiss it because they're very good at suppressing their emotions. Whereas a healthy individual will feel so guilty that they'll either stop the affair very soon after it started, um, or actually they'll tell you about it. And, um, you know, they'll do something that will fix it because they don't want to keep feeling that guilt. But the narcissist is not able to regulate their emotions. They're very good at suppressing their emotions, often through substances or addictions or distracting themselves with work. They're just shoving down emotions all the time. So any guilt that's triggered, they're just pushing it away along with the idea that they're right and you're wrong. Um, so actually you'll probably find that actually in this dynamic you're being cheated on in some shape or form it's going to be a lot more common than in a different relationship 
That one, this was a really hard one for me because in a lot that we've spoken about, I think you can start to identify these traits by asking questions, by, you know, feeling your gut. And maybe you can um, go back to your gut to see if someone's lying. But that's still sometimes hard. like, especially if you're a really good liar, like you, you like, they looked me in the eye, right? Like they, they held my hand, like all the things that you kind of perceive to be, oh, if they lie, they're going to do this. Mm. So this one's really hard for me to kind of, I think through to identify in somebody. Um, how do you advise maybe, or is it yeah. just like a long enough timeline they'll start to show themselves? Just trust your instinct. Because if you're constantly thinking that your partner is lying to you, it's telling, your body is saying, I don't feel safe. I don't trust this situation. They might not be lying to you about the exact thing that you're thinking they're lying about. But if you're constantly questioning, you know, are they, you know, something's not adding up, are they lying? And that's on your mind all the time. Something is going on. And, and, you know, and, and this is where often people will end up having to do their own detective work. And then, you know, they start, you know, checking phones and, and kind of going into detective behavior, which is awful because people will often go against their own morals when their Mm. body is question is, you know, their instinct is getting them to question things so much. So if you're feeling, you know, that, and it's, it's a hard one because sometimes people are thinking, why am I, why am I feeling so insecure? But, you know, if you're just questioning your partner and you just can't trust them and they're, they're, they're giving you reasons not to trust them, you know, they're being secretive. They're, they're, you know, not very open with their phone, things like this. You know, people are very good at being lie detectors if you trust your instinct. And I assume they're not always lying. There are times they would choose the lies that benefit them. Yeah, they they only lie when they need to lie and, you know, it's to protect themselves or to get what they want. It's not like they have to be pathological liars. No, they don't have to be pathological liars at all. And, you know, it really depends on actually what is happening in the relationship. And, you know, and also they may not cheat. You know, I'm not saying that all mm-hmm. narcissists will cheat either because actually some of them will have, um, you know, ideas about about what's right or what's wrong and how they want their relationships to go. But there will be other trust issues and there'll be other ways that actually you're not being treated correctly, such as not caring about your emotions. So narcissists still have morals. Oh, they still have morals, <laughs> yeah. unless they're psychopaths. Right. Um, oh, okay. You yeah, they don't have morals, but actually, yes, they still have, you know, they still have influences. Um, you know, perhaps they grew up in a family where they watched how their mom and dad's relationship played out and they want to aspire to something that looks kind of like that because they perceive that as like being, you know, the gold standard or, or something to, uh, to go towards. So, so they will still often have you know, ideas as to um, how they want to live their relationship life. Uh, they will sometimes very much believe in monogamy, for instance, based on their beliefs that they've established growing up. Mm, interesting. Fascinating. Um, number 11, they're not kind. Well, narcissists are... <laughs> After everything we've said, it's like, it doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> what can I say? Sadly, they're not kind. Um, the, the empathy is just, yeah, it's just not high enough. I'm not saying it's not there because actually perhaps they have the capacity for empathy, particularly when it doesn't involve their behavior and how their behavior has impacted you. But actually they're not very kind because they will put themselves first because they're selfish, because they haven't matured enough to be able to look at things from other people's perspectives. But I assume they can be kind when it benefits them as a manipulation technique. Oh, they can be very kind when it benefits them. And they're people pleasers, which is why you often see that they won't tell you the truth. They will often not break up with people in a, you know, when they, when they should or when they've lost interest in the relationship. Um, they will often, 
do extravagant things and they'll go and above and beyond to actually look like very good people. So sometimes they will host you know, huge dinner parties and look after people and make sure everyone's catered for because they'll want to impress the right people mm. in the right places. Um, so they'll be incredibly good and kind, kind acting to people who will benefit them and people where they'll get something in return. And then they won't be great to people that they perceive as being lower value who won't benefit them in, in any way. I think a good example of this is let's just say the person has a membership for a private members club. And every time they go in there, they tip the waiting staff, they tell them jokes, they're kind to them because they know the next time they go in, they're going to get a special treatment. And then they're in the cab driver, they're in the cab home mm. and they're rude to the cab driver because they think they're never going to see them again. Oh, that's interesting. And then when even when you said people pleasing, I was like, well, a lot of us kind of people have people pleasing traits. But is the difference then if like I'm I used to be a people pleaser a lot, but it was because like I love my mum so much and I want her to be happy. And so like I feel really bad about telling her that I don't want children because I know it's going to break her heart versus a narcissist that's a people pleaser because of their own ego. Yeah, exactly. It's very much the ego boost for themselves. And also you know, the, the perception, you know, they need other people to perceive them as being this saint. So they kind of build this like false reality of who they are, you know, that their public figure, their, their way of being publicly is all about putting on a show. And the putting on a show means that they always want to look really good in front of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the people pleasing you're talking about, you're absolutely right. It's more about, I don't want to hurt the other person's feeling and, and often people are struggling to tell the truth. Um, but actually, usually those people have enough empathy to loop back and do the right thing in the end. Yeah, because as I was thinking about how this relates to specifically sex as well, it's that I really want my partner to be happy in the bedroom. So I'm going to do this to make, obviously within your code of ethics, but to do this to make them happy because I know this will make them happy versus I'm going to do this so I feel like a stud. Yeah, it's confusing, right? Mm -hmm. Because like you might see the very same behavior, but then the motive behind the behavior is what we're looking for. And that's where it's like the after behaviors and the aftercare in sex is, is what's important. Um, so it's confusing and, you know, um, sex is highly addictive. It, you know, really brings, uh, brings about a lot of physical stuff that makes us very likely to go back to sex when it feels very good. So actually people need to really kind of, you know, take a step back when you've had a sexual encounter, uh, with someone and, you know, really think about how did you feel and how safe did you feel? And how was the aftercare? How was the person in the pillow talk afterwards? (laughs) All right. Um, number 12, they won't ever apologize. They'll find it really hard to apologize. And actually with this one, they might say, I'm sorry, but do they really mean it? Are they just saying, I'm sorry, because they know they need to keep you happy so that they can keep the peace and stay in the relationship and have their needs continue to be met? Often they will never apologize at all because that would involve admitting that they were wrong. So actually apologies are very rare, but sometimes you will hear the words, I'm sorry. And what you need to look for there is, do they really mean it? How do you know then if they really mean it or not? Well, you have to look at well, what was the... um what was the context of this situation? You know, was it just them saying, I'm sorry, because they wanted to end the conversation? And also, what are they doing to bear, you know, your perspective mm. in mind for next time? So if they're saying, you know, they're sorry for like texting someone that they shouldn't, you know, creating some kind of emotional bond via, via text and they apologize and they say they'll never do it again. Um, you know, are they actually 
really going to never do it again? Do they really care about it? You know, are they really reflecting on the behavior or are they just saying, I'm sorry, so they get to stay in the relationship and it keeps the peace? Yeah. All right. And number 13, they won't connect emotionally. Yeah. So this is a confusing one because there's going to feel like there's strong emotions going on. Uh, Because it's a roller coaster. There's a very intense phase of the idolization phase, and then there's the devaluing phase. But is it a true emotional connection? What you'll find is you're missing a lot of things that are important for people to connect. So you're going to be missing the conversations of wants and needs and building a future together and negotiating things and um, being able to resolve conflict in a really healthy way. So the communication is not really going to be about really getting to know you as a person and sustaining that over a long period of time. And um, it's going to be more superficial. So you'll probably find that your partner you feel quite lonely in the relationship because you feel that your partner probably has never really gotten to know you and who you really are and your wants and needs and um, actually having a dynamic that's a two-way mutual dynamic. And would they um, typically then, let's say you're you're like pressing them a bit to try and be more emotionally open, are they more likely to lie or are they more likely to shut down? So... You probably feel, you probably feel you're just not getting anywhere. Mm. And, um, you know, and this might be that you're trying to have a serious conversation and they distract you or you're just not getting the closeness that you need. So you might just constantly feel like you're craving more closeness, um, or that the problems are always getting in the way of having the conversations about building your lifestyles in the way that you want to, you want to build and like having these, um, constructive conversations where actually, you know, you're actually, you know, solving the problems together or you're building your future together. It's, it's like too much drama gets in the way of that or things that are kind of superficial. Mm. So is there anything that you can maybe ask somebody, let's say, because everything we've covered is if you're already in that relationship, hoping that maybe someone isn't right now, but they're like, Oh, I don't want that. I don't want anything that, you know, you guys have just broken down. Is there any like, maybe like three questions or the questions you can ask um, somebody on a first day or on a second day that can start to identify whether they're going to be a toxic narcissist. So you could say, how do you handle conflict? How do you like to handle conflict? And just see what they say. And then you're just listening to your emotions. You're just being like, you know, you're listening to what is your body saying? Because they might just present you with a whole, you know, the ideal answer. Right. Because it's quite a, you know, it's quite a leading question. Of course, everyone's on their best behavior on the first date. And um, you they most likely will tell you what you want to hear. But you just need to really pay attention to what, how, how is your body responding to that information? And then you go away from that first date and then you check in because it's too hard to check in emotionally when you're focused on the conversation. Um, but you can really ask them anything because you're just going on a fishing trip to find out who is this person. Um, you know, you don't want to come across like as you're interrogating them because first dates should be fun. You know, so just have loads of fun, throw in the odd question about their life, their preferences, what they want from a relationship. I think it's really a really important question is, are you looking for a long-term serious relationship? Um, because actually when people are, they're usually able to say yes to that question. When they're not, they will lie to you in all sorts of indirect ways, or they will basically tell you that they're not looking for a relationship in all sorts of ways. So they will say things like they'll skirt around the question. The question They might be like, oh, what do you mean by a long-term serious relationship? Mm-hmm. Which is avoiding answering the question. Or, um, well, yeah, but like, you know, I just want to see how things go or, um, um, or, or yeah, well, yeah, eventually. And there will be just not a direct, yes, that's what I'm looking for. 
Now, I'm not saying that, you know, you, you want to, you know, make too many assumptions, but just take the information as being interesting information. If someone is saying on a first date that they're not looking for a long-term serious relationship, and that is what you're looking for, then already they've told you that you're not aligned and it's a mismatch. So then why would you continue dating them? Which is what a lot of women that I work with end up doing, that they find out someone's not looking for the same kind of commitment as them. And then they keep dating them. So ask very direct questions to see if you're aligned. Um, Of course, you might not be looking for a long-term serious relationship and that's fine too. But, you know, just, just ask them the questions that are as direct as possible. So you get the information while also having loads of fun Mm -hmm. and not looking like you're interrogating them. Yeah. Um, Out of curiosity, why then if the women, if the person says, I'm not looking for a serious relationship, but the women are. Why do they keep dating them? Is that the hope that they're going to change or they're trusting like, or not even trusting, they're going through, um, they feel the heart flutter. And so they're following that instead of what the person actually just said. Yeah, desire. But actually, they're just completely discarding the real, the reality of the situation, or they're not actually good enough at detecting what is, what is the reality of the situation, because actually... In a lot of situations like this, if a woman is going to say, are you looking for a long-term serious relationship? They're not going to get a no. It's rare that a man is going to say no, because then they lose the opportunity and, and the woman's out the door. Um, so uh, in this situation, when you ask a direct question, then just listen very carefully to like how much padding is around, the, mm-hmm. how much conditions are around that answer. So what women are tending to do is if the man is saying, oh, like eventually I would like that, then they listen to, oh, eventually I'd like that. Okay, he says yes. And they're turning it into a yes. So they're translating the information in a very different way. So you want to ask direct questions. You want to get direct answers at the appropriate time because you don't want to turn things too seriously. But but really take note of the answers that you're getting because anything that's a bit hazy or vague means you're probably going to get hazy and vague. Yeah. Um, thank you for breaking that down. So now assuming that somebody is in a relationship, they've heard all the flags and they're like, okay, now I want to leave. Like, yes, everything you guys have said has really hit home and I really want to relieve this relationship. What are the steps you suggest somebody takes? This is really hard for people because if they're in a deep trauma bond, they have to get over an addiction. So actually they have to get over love addiction in order to get out of the relationship. Now, love addiction is basically being addicted to a feeling that is related to a romantic situation, but it's not love. It's not a deep, committed, trusting, safe relationship. So first of all, you need to identify that leaving them is going to be as difficult as overcoming an addiction and therefore your tendency to want to go back, even if you successfully leave your likelihood to be like, I just can't take this pain anymore. I can't take the pain of not being with them. I can't take this um, craving to go back. And and sometimes people then will fall straight back into it. So you have to recognize that, that if you've already fallen into a trauma bond, you're leaving a very serious addiction. And you have to acknowledge that in yourself. You don't have to call yourself an addict or anything. You just have to compare it to an addiction and you have to acknowledge that, okay, I'm in a deep trauma bond. This is going to be as difficult as overcoming an addiction. Therefore, I have to go absolute no contact. I have to do whatever it takes to go no contact. It can't just be that when I have the impulse to message them or call them, I can do it because this is like overcoming crack. You can't just dabble in crack occasionally if you're serious about overcoming crack. So you have to take it that serious if you're in a deep trauma bond with a narcissist. What if there's fear behind leaving? Fear is in what they may do. They may... Um, you know, what is the word? Um, 
uh, like try and sabotage you, sabotage your name, talk badly to you, mm. things like that. Yeah. And obviously different people have different situations. If kids are involved, it gets a lot more complicated. If there's domestic violence, it gets a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. So in the extreme cases, you definitely need to contact the right support and the right organizations who can advise on the legalities where there's children and, and really helping come up with a safety plan. But if you feel that they won't actually do anything too harmful and it's just words, then you have to trust that actually um, it's better for you to leave and you know, let them say whatever they want to say and you can just deal with it afterwards and that you will be healthier and happier once out of the dynamic, even if you lose a few friends um, over it, that you will be able to repair things and you'll be able to repair your life in a way that is much better than your current situation. So you can't control them. Um, you know, if they do something that's against the law, then that's where you may need to get, you know, some extra support. But, um, but you know, if it is really just... They may get very angry. Let them get angry. Just, you know, block them if you need to block them. So you're shielded from abusive messages that might come through or angry words, words that come through. Um, but get yourself out of the situation. Avoiding that conflict as much as humanly possible. Yeah. Yeah. Just to protect yourself. And, you know, and, and yeah, some people have very strong emotional reactions to being left because, as I said before, narcissists have fear of abandonment. And when that gets triggered, triggered, they're more likely to express anger because it's safer to, to them than expressing vulnerability. They might express vulnerability as well because, you know, sometimes they're on the floor begging and, you know, doing quite outrageous things to convince people to stay. Um, so expect the outrageous behavior because that person is terrified of being left, but you still need to leave someone who doesn't have enough empathy to offer you a decent relationship. Mm. And if you have the empathy and you see them on the floor, crestfallen, heartbroken, they're probably trying to pull at your heartstrings. You have to put your own oxygen mask yeah. on first. Yeah. And, you know, and that's the hard thing here is because often people who have a lot of empathy will care for others first. A lot of women will care for other for others first. It's deeply ingrained in them. It's a very maternal instinct that actually women just care for others before they care about themselves. They do that a lot in relationships. So if they're in a relationship with a narcissist, the tendency is to care for the narcissist first. And that has to stop. You have to just, even if it feels selfish, even if it makes you feel guilty, you have to look after yourself first if you've been mistreated. Homie, where can people find you and everything you're doing? This has been so freaking amazing, so tactical, so informative. Um, so where can people find you and all of the other work you're doing? People can find me over on Private Therapy Clinic, which is my YouTube channel. I'm also on other socials such as Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Becky Spellman.